Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Um... Season is coming to an end. We have just a couple of tournaments left and Davis Cup, Billie Jean King Cup finals uh, around the corner. And uh, lots of players are injured. Uh, a lot of players are doing fine in the indoor seasons, the ones that I really enjoy it. Like, but yeah, we're just really approaching the end. And it's kind of already nostalgic for the big matches in Grand Slams. But yeah, here I have just Owen today. Vansh could not be again um it couldn't be us three again it's the, the end of the year is also hurting us as well <laughs> probably not as injured as his players but still um so how are you doing owen i'm doing well and i was about to say the end of the year even though tennis is still happening made, makes me excited for the australian open uh before yeah. tennis has even started so um so i thought it was funny that you said it makes us miss the grand slams um yeah i mean the end of the season is always kind of interesting because um like you said there is stuff going on like there is tennis but so many players are hurt and so many players are injured that whenever we get a good match or like a quality match, um, it feels unexpected to me because I'm Mm -hmm. like, this is coming up on the end of month 10 now of this grinding season, most of which is hard courts. So it's kind of amazing that anyone is still standing at this point. Yeah. It's, it's always like one of the talks about the year. It's like, should we have shorter season? Do we have like too much of a season? Is it just a matter of players not scheduling properly? Um, I don't know, or just maybe just the game is just that more much more physical nowadays. And I don't know. It's maybe a combination of all these things. Yeah, I mean, I think it is. And I think the tough thing is, I mean, ideally, people would be skipping tournaments right now and resting up. But I think the problem is only a few players in the world are rich enough to have the luxury to do that. I mean, I think everyone remembers the quote from Andre Rublev during the pandemic when he said, um, you know, I haven't been competing and I still have to pay my team and I don't even have enough money to buy an apartment. And when he gave that quote, I think it was in May, he had already made over a million dollars that year and it wasn't enough for him to buy an apartment. And he was eighth in the world when he said that. And I mean, eighth in the world, that's, that's top 1% or something like that. So if you think of everyone else, they really need the money so they can like travel to Melbourne next year or whatever other tournament they're going to, if they're not ranked high enough to get into the Australian open. So mm-hmm. it's, I think, um, I was thinking about this recently and I wrote a bit about it in like a Google doc. And I think I said it was like sort of a broken system, but it's also like become necessary for these lower ranked players because again, they need the money. Um, and so I think probably a lot of players out there are playing injured, um, yeah. which is and a shame, it's... but again, they have to do it. So, yeah, like I, I don't know exactly where I read it, maybe Wikipedia or something, um, but maybe an article online that said, um, that apparently like a regular expenses for traveling for being a traveling pro full-time is that you have to spend about $150,000 a year just on traveling 
and just the regular expenses like paying your coach and your team and rackets and stringing mm -hmm. shoes probably if you don't have lots of players don't have deals so you, you're trying to strike deals with just basically anything at that point if you yeah. can make a, a deal for like socks and another for shorts another for shirts you probably would do it just to get the free one yeah for sure i mean you're talking about a lot of players not having shoes apparently andy murray doesn't have shoes who's one of the richest tennis players ever uh i mean i i joke but Like when you said $150,000, my first thought was, honestly, that sounds low to me. Like it's, it's not surprising at all that they have to pay that much. I mean, mm -hmm. when you're traveling with a team of, you know, a coach and a physio and some people have a nutritionist and you want to yeah. travel with a family member, probably, or a spouse or a partner, like, that's a lot of money. Um, yeah. And, and if you don't win, then it gets tougher and tougher to fund yeah. that. And the pressure increases. It's, yeah, it's just crazy not too. ideal at all. Yeah. And it's crazy too, because if you look at the prize money that they award for like losers, like in the, the lowest of the lowest tiers, like the ITFs, um, it's like some tournaments you can get, you can get away with as low as like $300 if you lose in the first, second round. And it's like, this is nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. I mean, when I was doing a bit of research for this, I looked at the Australian open prize money. Um, and I think in the, this year, and this was pandemic influence, it was a bit lower than normal. I think the winners got like 2.1 million and the first rounders got 70,000. Um, and I was thinking like, that's not, it's not proportional. You know, the first yeah. round is not one, one eighth of what the winner gets. And so I was thinking they could change that, but yeah. in 70,000 is still a lot compared to 300, which is what you mentioned. And, um, and the yeah, players exactly. playing the ITFs are the ones who are struggling the most anyway. Yeah. So. so yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why players like want to get their ranks up enough so that it can like maybe reach the first round of a grand slam so they can like, You know, if you go like Wimbledon, Roland Garros and like Australian Open and the US Open, like you probably can probably like pocket like maybe three hundred thousand dollars. And that's like half of your stuff for the year. Yeah. And you can probably budget for the next year as well. Like so that's definitely like a like a goal that they have. It's not even about winning at that point, it's just making enough money to stay afloat exactly and that's why you'll see players like go to the australian open and like play half of a set in the first round and then retire because they know they're injured and they're not going to be able to finish but if you don't play then you make less money um yeah. and i mean we're going to talk about this later but i think with the year-end finals as well um i mean someone like nadal is going to skip it because he can but if you're someone who's going for the first time I mean, it's a lot of money that you can make there. Yeah. So if you're hurt or exhausted, like maybe you'll go anyway and think yeah. like, you know, if I can win a match, um, I mean, I'm not sure how much they make if they don't win any matches or if they win one, but I think, I think it's probably there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a participation fee that you, that you make. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, if you win a match, regardless if it's like a dead rubber, um, it, you still get paid for the win. So for example, Rublev last year when he got his win, He made money out of that win that didn't count for anything. <laughs> so, right. yeah, I mean, and it's so different from the player's perspective as well because when that match is happening, every fan in the world is thinking like, "No one cares about this." Yeah. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter. But for the players, it's like, "I'm paying. I'm playing for like a quarter of a million dollars, or yeah. however much it is, which is insane." I think it's about that actually. It's like about 250 mil. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, because um, I think. I think the women's year-end finals in like 2019, I remember reading the prize money for the winner was more than the majors. Like it was, it was like a million yeah. more than you got at like Wimbledon or something like that. Yeah. Um, like yeah. th these tournaments are rich. So yeah, they, I don't even know like what's the, I think tennis needs some sort of like restructuring about like their formats and anything. 
but it's it's interesting too. Like I don't know if I, if I told you guys, but like I was presented with. Uh, I'm not sure if I should be saying this. So, um, should I say this? Well, never mind. I'll just I'll just chat this and and the, the I'll just sh- shoot this in the um, in the WhatsApp group because I don't think I can disclose this information. But like, okay. uh, it was something about like um, like money and, and tennis and whatnot. But like, maybe this information is uh, is available online for everyone to see. And I'm just kind of being cautious to over cautious but like no no, no, that's cool like i mean to anyone listening to this if you want to pay a hundred dollars to join our patreon you too could be part of the whatsapp group chat and get insight to this exclusive information i'm kidding we don't have a patreon but not yet um, (laughs) and i'm not kidding i'm actually working on this one so maybe one day if you want to support (laughs) us it'll be soon Um, enough but i mean that's one of the things i'm looking forward to if i'm able to get a job in tennis just like learning more about how the structure Mm. works and the Mm. money and how the players feel about all this because i think as a fan you really don't get much insight into um the inner workings of it without doing some really deep dives yeah and if if you want to like maybe trying to segue a bit into the actual tennis that is happening this week and the next like a tournament like vienna for example um which is a smaller tournament right but still players are giving their hearts out like to try and win this like it's interesting from the perspective of the fan because you look at those tournaments and even the 500s which are big enough like if you remember when um rublev was winning all of these yeah 500s not last year at some point it just it started to feel a bit a little bit meaningless right because it's like oh it's just an atp 500 like man it's an atp 500 that is only like four kinds of tournaments it's like yeah i mean it's it's a handful that's like bigger than this you know yeah exactly like if we take out the world's tour finals because it just happens once a year and the olympics because it's once every four years this is the third biggest amount of points you can win by winning a tournament it's only the masters 1000s and the majors that are bigger Mm -hmm. and um yeah i mean i remember watching rublev win all of these and i didn't pay much attention well like in the sense that i didn't make many conclusions from it because i think the highest ranked player who he beat in any of them was was Pass, and yeah. um and it didn't feel that reproducible for him to beat Pass again i mean i think he lost in straights to stuff at the french open in 2020 um so i don't think it necessarily does much for i guess like your prospects in bigger tournaments but yeah like 500 is a solid number of points um and uh, and on the note of prize money i just looked up um how much they're getting at the Vienna Open. And it looks like the winner is getting 220,000 euros, which is more than double the amount Rublev got when he won it last year. Yeah. Yeah. Last um, year was definitely a, a different, a different year. Like I, I remember, if I am not mistaken, John Millman, who won his one and only title so far in his career, he made like $11,000 oh, by geez. winning an ATP 250. <laughs> Yeah, that's that, insane. I mean, normally, I think the prize money is about fifty to eighty thousand dollars for the winner. Yeah, like I'm, I'm reading this article um, on a site called Perfect Tennis, and it says um, the prize money for the runner-up is increasing by seventy-five percent from last year, and the prize money for the first-round losers is rising zero point four percent from last year. Man, which really <laughs> I mean, rough. you can see how elitist the structure is. Um, yeah. It's basically no difference. Yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, it sucks. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's really weird too because if you look at it, like if you're a first round loser, you mentioned the Australian Open, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the Australian Open first rounder makes like seventy thousand, and I think the U.S. Open also makes seventy five thousand. Um, and I think they raised that by 
I don't know. It, it was a lot from uh, a couple of years back. And I, I think I made the count and like you're paying 70,000, dollars to 128, no, 64 players, I think. Cause they lose yeah. the, the losers. And I think that's, my calculations are probably way off, but like I think it's like about nine million dollars that you pay. So like, there's like almost five times over the winner's paycheck, right? So it's it's not a it's not a joke how much money is like going into those tournaments. So it's understandable they have to manage, but there's just like there's money going somewhere, and that could be maybe a potential way to manage it better i think riley opelka probably has the best case um the best case for it which is allow players to have more sponsorship because you know the the thing that that happened to him about the the bag was quite outrageous honestly it was insane yeah um i've got my phone here and um if we do seventy five thousand times 64 that comes out to um 4.8 million dollars 4.8 million and, yeah i think i calculated 428 mistakenly yeah. okay yeah and, and like that's a fair bit but in a normal year it's not even double what the winner makes and i, I mean obviously yeah. it makes sense like you should make more money the more you win it would make no sense for everyone to make the same amount regardless yeah. of performance but i wouldn't see anything wrong with like shaving a million off of that and redistributing it to the earlier rounds and mm-hmm. And it also feels like a bit of a missed opportunity as well, because in these big three years, I don't think anyone's going to complain. I mean, in the Serena dominance as well, those four are like the richest, four of the richest tennis players ever. Like, I don't think they're going to mind if a quarter of like their prize money for like a major gets taken off. Um, I mean, Djokovic has even tried to like do a a funding thing for lower ranks players during the pandemic. Um, I'm not sure how that ended up going, but yeah. And now... I mean, now it would have it would probably be less easy because you're going to have like new players winning majors on mm-hmm. the ATP side. The WTA is um, is unpredictable, so yeah. um, so now like if if someone wins one, they might like need it more. But yeah, it's so top heavy. Like yeah, I was reading. Uh, I'm reading the Master right now. I finally got to start reading it. Um, oh, great! And it's it's fantastically well written. I think you're going to really like it. Um, and he was talking about um, Federer's exhibitions uh, in South America back in 2012. Uh-huh. Um, he start he starts the book, the book on that, so you, you see how how far into it I am. Like not really much, but uh, he I think he he was saying that by match Federer is going to make like two million dollars, and by the end of the by the end of all the matches that he played, he was going to make like almost double the amount of prize money that he had made all year long, including winning Wimbledon. <laughs> that is ridiculous. And that's also more prize money than most players make in an entire career. I know. That he's and making in yeah. a week or two weeks right there. For for these players, and mind you, Djokovic is the highest play, the, the player who has amount, amassed yes. the most prize money in his entire career. And that's a fraction of what he makes like off of sponsorships a year. Yeah, like Federer, Federer, like stroke, stroke of the year. I think of like three hundred thousand, three hundred million dollars with like Uniqlo. Yeah, I think um, someone wrote an article about him and like the ridiculous amount he was making by switching from Nike to Uniqlo. Yeah, I and, read that one. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, the the prize money isn't even the bulk of um, this what the stars make. I mean, for the lower ranks players, they're going to have much less lucrative deals, and um, some yeah. might not have any, and so prize money. Is a much bigger slice of that, but yeah, if you've like your Osaka's and Federer's and Djokovic's and Serena's, like 
oh my god those commercials and the yeah. the brands are giving them like you know 10 year 200 300 million deals yeah. so and did you did you read all the stuff about Raducanu when she won the u.s open there was a guy that was saying like well, we can we can definitely make her the first billion dollar athlete. Yeah, net, it's like she could have a net worth of a billion dollars. And she like, literally already pocketed two point five million yeah. winning the US Open. <laughs> it's insane. I guess um, the AirPods are gonna be like just peanuts right now. <laughs> yeah. Because there was I mean, an interview show saying, like, I lost my AirPods this morning. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah in, in two weeks you go from the um like, oh no, it's gonna be expensive to replace these to like I could I buy, buy all the AirPods in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and some players to brands are easier to market than others, which results in a lot of players getting these huge deals, some players not getting any deals. Yep. Um, I think that's actually a big thing at the Olympics as well. Like some gold medalists won't really get any money from it um, because other athletes get the commercials and the deals based on how marketable brands think they are. And a lot of the time that can be as subjective as something like the player's looks or the athlete's looks. Um, And so like a lot of this or or where they're from and a lot of this is not fair in the slightest. Yeah. Which by the way, don't, not that I want to get into the veer the conversation into feminism. um, But it's obvious that like women make more money also if they're considered like prettier, which is a shame. Yeah. I mean, there was a whole conversation I heard on, on, not on Twitter, but on Facebook about people talking about why Anjabar has struggled so much in her in her career, mostly because of that reason, which is quite sad to think about, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame because it has nothing to do with the tennis. And yep. again, looks are subjective from person to person. Yep. And so, yeah, trying to appeal to the masses in this way is just again like not fair in the slightest. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and the and the core of it is like you can't control the way you look. And you can yeah. control the way you play. So giving people more money based on the thing you can't control makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, this has been a really depressing start to the podcast. Yeah, so I let's guess. Let's talk about Vanna. Now that the end of the year is coming, there's less tennis to talk about. So we talk about right. all this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have we have like two months of, or like one month of no tennis to yeah. talk about this stuff. Maybe, maybe that's the reason why they keep the tennis season so long so that we don't revolt. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, like as a fan, it is great. Um, yeah. Like, I remember, I think, like, maybe two years ago, the off-season, I got really bored during. And so I started writing, like, I started trying to write, like, a book format and, like, a Google Doc. And I wrote, like, 20 pages on the start of the 2010s decade. I don't know where it is now. It probably got deleted. But I was thinking, like, you know, this is a project I could do during the off-season because there's no tennis going on. But now I think of it more from the player's perspective. (laughs) Like, the off-season needs to be so much longer because... I mean, 10, 11 months out of the year sliding on cement. I was watching uh, Alcaraz play today. And when he was making some of these gets out of the corner yep. and his shoes are just shrieking on the, on the hard court, it's yeah. just making me wince because I'm like, yeah, so much of this all year. How are their bodies staying together? Um, yeah. I mean, and it's like his first full year doing this as well. I mean, yeah. I don't know how he or anyone is going to stay together in five years. Yeah. The, the one thing that I remember about Alcaraz, of course, like watching him play, it was like, man, this is the body of an 18 year old. Like uh-huh. he better cherish that a lot because that's not going to last. Um, but um, I remember when he won his first title, I think in Umag um, this year, he, his right arm was heavily, heavily like, taped and like wrapped in like uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, like a heavy, it looked like almost like a plastic bag that he was like holding his arm together. And I can only imagine like, man, he, he must he, he must be having a lot of like muscle muscular things like issues in his right, right arm because obviously he has been had been playing a lot of tennis as you said like it's the first season doing that in the highest level right so he, he yeah. could probably get away in some challenges with like some unforced errors from his opponents and he was already better than most of them anyways but now that he's in the actual tour he's definitely gonna cross uh cross paths with a with a lot more like experienced player who, who are not just going to gift him stuff like that mm-hmm. we're going to have more experience to like land a first serve here and there like he played against berrettini and he bright sticked him in the first set but then it got grueling and right after that so like yeah it's, it's reason enough to think like man these guys are not going to give up no matter what the score is right yeah i mean i think something that fans really don't hear much about is all the little things players do to like take pressure off fits of their bodies like you see you see the tape on the arm but I'm sure they also have inserts or orthotics in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, in Agassiz's book, he said, like he had a donut taped to his toes to like take pressure off of it. And they put it on with like this purple ink that was like a glue. And he said that like his toe hadn't been without that ink since like Reagan had been president. Um, and so like over years and years, they have all these little things. I mean, you see Nadal's like taped fingers and those mm-hmm. are like as thick as a salami uh, because there's so much of it. And it gets to the point where it's like, how can you even hold a racket at that point? But yeah, I mean, every little thing needs to be working well for a player to be able to like fly around a hard court and slide and yeah. move back and forth with these very violent motions. And so, yeah. so yeah, like all those little precautions make a lot of sense. And, and with Alcaraz, I mean, he's fit, but he also hasn't really had to play many five setters yet i mean he played Pass and then goyovchik and back-to-back five setters but i mean i'm trying to think i, I think the one against Pass was like four hours and the next one was less physical and then in the round after that like he got injured um yeah. like this stuff is not easy to avoid and his serve is not big enough that he can win matches really efficiently yet like you said he he breadsticks berrettini in the first set, set but then he couldn't really capitalize on break points in the second and it end up, ended up being like a two and a half hour match, I think. I don't remember mm-hmm. the exact time. But yeah, I mean, a match like that is grueling. And if you're returning the serve and forehand of someone like Berrettini, you're going to be doing a lot of defending as well. And yeah. he's playing again tomorrow, like less than 24 hours against a top five player this time. Not He's really good in pushing the ball and making the rallies long, mind you. Exactly. Yeah. And not, none of us like him. We know <laughs> why. Um, and... I mean, yeah, just doing that every day. And then after a tournament, you go to another tournament the next week. And I mean, like, it makes a lot of sense why you see so many players win a tournament and then lose in the first round in the next one. Um, Because it's grueling. The the turnaround is so short. Yeah, I remember you were saying like, oh, yeah, you need so many things to make your body like more properly like made to like actually play the game. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I bought a proper tennis shoes because before i used to be too broke to do that yeah so like i I just bought like i worked in i worked in the the rogers cup back in the day now national bank open presented by rogers <laughs> um and with the money that i made and i had a discount for a certain period of time and i bought myself like adidas barricade 6.0 um i think it was back in 2012 or 13 um Back in the time, Djokovic and Andy Murray were wearing those shoes, and it's actually the Andy Murray shoes that I bought the the blue ones that had his uh, 
his signature and the and, and the and the soul. Oh, that's so um, cool. It was really cool. Uh, and the first time I put the shoes on, it was like it felt like I was walking in the clouds. The shoes were so perfectly made, and it, they just hugged my feet. And I was like, man, this is incredible. I feel like I I feel like I could just be wearing those shoes forever <laughs> because they felt so comfortable, and I could just glide over the course. Like I moved so well. It felt like I had springs on my feet. It, it was that's amazing. Awesome. It was like I have never had such mobility on court before. I was playing with, I was playing, I was playing barefoot, and I didn't know before because this is ridiculous. <laughs> I felt yeah. like almost like Inspector Gadget type of thing. Like this is insane. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's no wonder that the best players have shoes like that because again, yeah. when you're doing these sprints, like it, it would destroy your feet. Like I remember, um, this was an injury I got at the start of 2020, but I was playing a match on a hard court. And one of the soles of my tennis shoes wore through a little bit. Um, and so there was like a hole in the bottom. And so sometimes when, and I, I can barely slide, but sometimes when I was sliding, I guess like my sock would come into contact with the court. Um, and I ended up getting a stress fracture and this really small bone really? in my foot from that, like that one day. And I ran on it afterwards and made it worse because I didn't know what it was. And that like still bothers me sometimes. Like it's not fully heals almost two years later. Um and so if you're, I think Monica Sellas had a similar, similar injury where like that bone that I'm talking about, like completely shattered and she had to take six months, no playing at all, just like sitting mm. on the couch. Um, and so obviously if that happens, it's disastrous for a player. Yeah. So you're going to like wrap your feet in pillows basically to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. That's, that's a little bit of what, what happens to Nadal really, because he has like this chronic and um, chronic illness in his foot, like yeah. the, one of his bones, which is like extremely important for your bone structure in your foot um it's kind of injured and in, by genetics or something like that so his his shoes like that has have so many things inside of it just yeah. to keep his foot like properly placed and the dog is the type of player that runs like from side to side on the baseline all day long so can yeah. you imagine just how much pain he's he, he in and i watched the video just recently and if I if I ever had any doubts, which I in the past did have about his injuries, now I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is ridiculous. No, he's he he probably not only had the injuries, but he overplayed with those injuries just oh, to yeah. keep himself like playing in the game and being at the top because it's it's insane just the amount of things. And coming back maybe to the point of um, money and injuries and even to Akras, like Akras is just starting his career. Mm-hmm. Even if he's tired and tired, and his his body is saying to him like he will calm down, like take a take a break. He still needs to go out there and be on court. Like after that is going to be an off season, so he's not going to have the opportunity to make money anymore. So he's got to right. do whatever he can to to do to to make that money and yeah. to make ends meet. You know. Yeah, and he's not really going to be resting. He's going to be training his butt off to try to do well at the Australian Open at the start yeah. of next year. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And like what you mentioned with Nadal, I think for him, it's sort of like this vicious cycle where he adjusts the soles in his shoes to like take pressure off that foot. But those adjustments put more pressure off on other parts of his body, yeah. like his knees or his back or something. And so those things will get injured and then they'll have to tweak it more. Um, and it's just this continuous cycle. I mean, his book, which he, which I think came out in like 2011, he said they still didn't have it right. And this was an injury that started in 2006 Mm. I think it was that same thing in his foot that was bothering him at the French and is why he hasn't really been playing for the rest of the year. Um, and yeah, it, it sounds awful. Like 
I think something I wrote about Alcaraz was um, to like win a major or something I would try to do if I were him is like get super fit, like as fast as you can, because in, in this era, you can't win matches only by playing short points and, um, and to win a major, you have to win 21 sets on the ATP side. Mm-hmm. Um, and with his serve, it's going to be tough to win efficiently. So he's going to need to be able to run for days um, yeah. like to get through a major and at 18, uh, it's probably not happened yet. So getting fit like as fast as you can pays off really well, which is what Nadal did when he was 18. He already had the legs needed to win a major mm-hmm. and then he could just like tweak his game. And that's why he did it so young because he was already fit enough. Um, yeah. But I mean, doing that as well, you could get hurt, like running constantly training four or five hours a day. Yeah. Like I get, that's basically as intense as playing a match. So and and even in the modern era of these these physios and ha- knowing a lot about medical science and injury prevention, like for a lower ranked player, if you don't have you know the limitless funds of Nadal, um, it's going to be tough. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely rough. Like there was a time like when I think Djokovic was doing some like sort of uh, treatment and people were complaining about it because it was like, extremely expensive, uh-huh. um, and. You know, like people are saying, like, okay, that's not fair because like players don't have access to it. Like, I mean, it, it, we don't even know like what where's the line between fair and not fair at this point because, right. I mean, you do have the resources, but then, like, what is what is really fair, right? Like, yeah, if you can, I, already... I mean, that is money that he earns, but we, we have talked about the uneven distribution of yeah, exactly. Stuff. I, I mean, I, I don't think there's an issue with using money that you've earned on yeah, for sure, like treating your body so you can do your job. Like, I don't exactly, yeah. It's like you wouldn't have to like pull through like just the worst gyms and like Echo Fitness or whatever like right. <laughs> just just because everybody else is doing that like I mean I don't know like it, it's important that tournaments and um, associations do their job and trying to accommodate those players so that they can do their job you know because it's it's like a mutual relationship like you make money off of us you you make money off of and I make money off of you type of exactly. thing I mean I don't know. So any comments on the tennis? <laughs> yeah, we got sidetracked again. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking so much about Alcaraz. I think in his match against Berrettini today, I was really impressed with him. I mean, the mm-hmm. way the way he hits the ball, it like the word crisp comes to mind. Like it's not always super hard. Like he hits the ball really, really hard, but he hits the ball so cleanly um, off both wings. He changes direction on his forehand and his backhand. Um, he's been moving well. And I think in the future, I mean, he is already, but he's just going to be an absolute nightmare to trade blows with from the back of the court. Yeah. Um, like, I think Berrettini is ranked like 36 spots higher. He's number seven in the world. And, and yet Alcaraz has a better backhand, moves better. Um, and like, it's just not great for Berrettini because even the discrepancy between the forehands, if Al- I think Alcaraz's is almost as good. Like Berrettini is a huge forehand. But it's not like forehands to forehand exchanges would result in an automatic point for him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Alcaraz could just sort of hit cross court backhands or inside out forehands and keep him pinned to that side and then only let him hit a forehand if it was on the run. Um, and he also returns way better than Berrettini. And so I, I'm amazed that at this young age, he's able to have kind of a favorable matchup with a top 10 player. Mm-hmm. Like when he played Tsitsipas at the US Open, I was watching it and I'm like, if. I didn't know better. I would think Alcaraz were the one who was five years older because his game is more polished. Um, So yeah, it's, it's just really, really impressive besides the serve, which stands to improve a lot. It's really nothing to complain about in his game. Yeah. The the one thing that like, 
if you if you want to just like tie it back to like the conversations, just the fact that like I I see that he runs so much, he's so oh, fast, yeah. and he slides around the court. And it's I already said that my comment at first is like, man, you have to find a way to not be doing this so much, right? Um, but at the same time, it's like, man, it, he's he's really good in pretty much everything in his game, and I don't even I don't even want to I I didn't even see much from what I've seen today. I was definitely. Um, doing other stuff at the, at the time as well. So just had it like in, in the back. Um, but he also doesn't seem technic- tactically um, clueless. You know, like he knows what he's doing as well. On court. Like when he's playing Murray, he learned with his mistakes from the last match from that he played in Indian Wells. And mm-hmm. he was using his forehand. Like when he was seeing the opportunity, he was using it to like put pressure on Murray's forehand and he wasn't um, giving Murray that many chances um to be aggressive and of course like making use of his superior agility now that he's so much younger um and Murray's uh, still trying to like get back on his on his feet um against Berrettini is just striking just the fact that Berrettini just it, it feels like Berrettini moves extremely poorly like compared to like yes. Akaras and you could see that because on the run um on paper, Berrettini has even on the run has a better forehand because he just is able to generate more pace and more spin. Mm-hmm. But it's just the fact that I feel like Akaras is just taking the ball so early. It's just like he, Berrettini was just always scrambling to just get to those balls, and yeah. and the backhand side was just almost open all the time. You know? Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, I, for me, um, I mean that was a huge difference, like the way they moved. And I think for me, the even bigger thing is. The difference in how well they return. Like mm. I'm, I'm looking at these stats, and Berrettini's serve is immeasurably better than Alvarez's. Yeah. Like it's not even close. And yet Berrettini had one break point in the entire match, and like like he converted it. But Alcaraz was three for nine. He won eighty percent of his first serve points, seventy four percent of his second serve points. And Berrettini was seventy seven on first serve, which is very good. Forty six percent on second serve, massive difference. Yeah. Um. And yeah, like Berrettini, his shortcomings were really highlighted in this match because his I mean, his serve and forehand are huge. Nothing to complain about there. His slice is very good, but that backhand is problematic. It, he can't attack with it. He can't defend with it. Like I think that the match point, Alcaraz hit a 120 mile an hour serve out wide, but it wasn't really close to either line. Like Berrettini basically has to take two steps to get to it. And then he doesn't even have to take a lunge, make a lunge. He, he takes like a full swing at the ball from right there. Uh, and he just hits it into the top of the net. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's like, it's a good first serve, but I'm like, I don't really think that was a force. You shouldn't serve. be missing that. So yeah. That, the yeah. Return, and right? like, I mean, five, six in a tie break match point, you have to make that return. Yes. Like you can't, you have to make them hit a ball and he, he couldn't do it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think something that annoyed me was in the highlights, like Berrettini played this great defensive point, and he hit like a cross-court slice winner off an Alcaraz forehands down the line. Um, and the tennis TV guy goes, that's why he's world number seven. Like, no, it isn't. He's world number seven because of his serve and his forehand. This is something yeah. he does once in a blue moon. Um, but yeah, like, and, and it's tough because we're talking about, you know, how players need to like avoid running around all the time. But the paradox is to be number one, you have to be able to do that. Like yeah. if you can't cover the court, you're screwed. Yeah, um, I was, yeah. I was actually thinking about that because the, there's one player that I I think is somewhat similar to Berrettini, which is um, a powerful forehand, a, good, a great serve, and a mildly good 
backhand with his slices. Roger uh, Federer, like, I feel like he kind of reminds me of, like, <laughs> gives me that energy a little bit. But, like, okay. even if you think about it, Roger Federer, he is still able to, like, summon good backhands. There's no, like, the myth that his backhand is mostly bad is just because Nadal is able to expose it so much during their rivalries. Mm. Um, and, but Federer is, like, so much a better mover than Berrettini is. Yes. Like, he was, there's, it's no, like it's it's no surprise that people say that Federer just glides on the court. It's not just because he moves like acrobatically well. It's just be- it's also because he can he is able to get to balls yeah. um, that are you know really far away. He's able to defend well, which is not something that Berrettini does. So like I'm thinking like what can a player like Berrettini who has um, a big serve and a big forehand and a great slice mm. um, do to maybe be like half of what Federer's game is. And it's like, uh-huh. it's, it's on the movement. Like it's it, on the it movement, is. at yeah. least on the movement. Even if yeah. you don't have like a, even if your backhand doesn't get that much better than what it is, you have to start moving a little bit better than that. Oh, for sure. I mean, and I don't think we can really expect his backhands to get that much better. I mean, I'm going to look up how old he is. I think he's 24. Um, yeah. Something like he's that. 25. Yeah. Like he's, he's in his prime. Like this is the age where you are in your prime. Like, I don't think, in five years, his backhand is going to become become like, I mean, no one's backhand is going to become a Djokovic backhand, but this is not even going to be like, I don't know, a Torich backhand or, mm-hmm. or like a center backhand. And I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on Federer's backhand that I won't go into, but like, yeah, I mean, he was able to do some good things with it. Yeah. Like right when he came up, like the slice was always good. He could always hit passing yeah. shots off of it. Veratini can't hit passing shots off. Of it, the thing like, is like, if you, Federer, if you push yeah. him out wide to that side, it's yeah. point over. For sure. It's like the thing is like Federer has great hands. That's what always helped him. Like it's that he's able to like block returns and he's able to block um, passing shots. Mm-hmm. He's able to like hit half volleys from the baseline. Well, yeah, and that's not something that all players are able to do properly. Right. So. Yeah. And um, I think the defense is one of the very few parts of Federer's game that people actually underrate because it's something yeah. that Nadal and Djokovic did like better. I mean, they did it so ridiculously well that it kind of got lost that Federer is almost as good as it, at it as them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he covers the court ridiculously well. Yeah. And that was what helped him. I mean, I, I learned all this from Juan Jose, so I'll, I'll say that so it doesn't seem like I'm coming up with these ideas by myself because I'm not. That was what helps him kind of rise to dominance is because like he had the defense and he had the serve and a ton of easy power on his forehand. And Berrettini is the servant yeah. a lot of easy power, but he does not have the defense. Like he, yeah. he needs to be on top of points all the time. Like when, when he was playing Djokovic at the U S open and Djokovic started to go into his lockdown mode, like the only way Berrettini was winning points was basically by aces or by one, two punches. Like if the shot went past three or four, if the rally went past three or four shots, yeah. um, like he was losing almost every time. And in today's game, you just can't let that happen. Like you have to be able to counter punch sometimes. Yeah. Um, and if you can't win points from defensive positions, sometimes against the best, you will not win. Yeah. I fully agree with that. And moving away from uh, that matchup, going yep. on further into the semifinals, can I just say a word that like, I'm really happy that Tiafo is doing well. Cause like, he's a player that I could always see that he had a lot of potential. Like, it it almost seems a lot like in his mind because I I I could see that he had like great shots. He had the energy. He's so fit. Um, it's just sometimes he just makes makes poor decisions, and you can see that very glaringly when he was playing that point again against Medvedev, which he thought he had won, oh, and then right. Medvedev just like knocks the ball back on court, 
and it's a winner and he's just like looking at the boys like say what it's like oh my gosh dude like pay attention <laughs> you, <laughs> I mean, you, I, gotta, you gotta be more focused at least <laughs> i i do get that i mean i think part yeah. of that is i mean no one was expecting that ball to come back and part of that is just Tiafo can be slightly goofy on court sometimes but, exactly but, but i do agree with you when i watch him and he loses I, I don't think it's any really it's any part of his game that's really holding him back. Like everything is very solid, and mm-hmm. w- when he's on, everything can be very explosive. Um, so I'm I'm not sure what it is that was sort of limiting his rise, but I mean, yeah, he's been he's been great this week. Um, he had a I didn't see this, but he had a hiccup today where he was up five one oh, yeah. against Schwartzman and got hauled all the way back. So I was really impressed that he was able to close that out. Mm-hmm. I think he even saved a set point in the tiebreak, and he when he was playing Pass. I saw the end of that and he, um, I mean, he also beat CT at Wimbledon and, um, he does a great job of playing really aggressively against CT and, um, getting on top very early in the rally and rushing, uh, rushing CT and coming to net. And, um, he's so fast, like on w- whether he's on the offense or the defense, um, like a point I have seared into my brain from this year is when he was playing Djokovic at the Australian open, um, and it was in the second set tiebreak. And do you know that shot Djokovic hits where like his opponent will hit an inside out forehand that pushes him like wide of the doubles alley. And from like 10 feet outside both lines, Djokovic hits a backhand down the line, like right into the corner. Yeah. So the, anyway, the, the he, open stance one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he did that. And it was a bullet. And Tiafo gets over to it so quickly that he's able to hit a drive forehand. He doesn't even have to slice it. So he does that and Djokovic comes to net and eventually Tiafo like forces a volley error. Um, but yeah, yeah, the point is like he's. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So quick. Um, he can yeah. get to a lot of stuff, and it helps him get to net quickly. And, you know, cut down on angles and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's great to see him doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, just looking at, he's, he plays center next. And that, that's going to yeah. be a big test because center is red hot. Um, yeah. But if he keeps up his form, I think that'll be really competitive. Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough to say. Like, I mean, obviously, center is um, on paper. If you have never seen any of them play, like, center is the better player. But, like, you can definitely see Tiafo could definitely win this match. It's it's not a match that's like it's, he's not playing against like Djokovic and the Australian Open, like you said, mm-hmm. like right now. But like his but Sinner is definitely like at this point, he just has a little bit more experience, I guess. Like at that stage, he will be able to um stay more focused and set at certain points. And obviously the hiccup didn't help um Tiafo's case today, but he was able to close it out, as I said, and that's really yeah. important, saving set points and everything. Um and I know that I think Tiafo is like ranked like at least he's, he's ranked outside the top 30 at this point. Yeah, he's in the 40s. I think yeah. 49th. I looked this up earlier. Is that a 49 yeah, or 50? But, so. but I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Um, and it's it strikes me because he, his level of play, he should be a, a top 20 player, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's 49th. Yeah, he's definitely playing above his ranking. Um, I would expect, I, I mean, if this keeps up, his ranking is going to fly. Oh, yeah, for like, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and it, it'll help him to be seated. And then, you know, you won't be playing Djokovic in the second round of the Australian Open yeah. not like he was this year. I mean, and um, and at the U.S. Open, he had a great run as well. Like, I think a match that people aren't really talking about is um, the third round he played against Rublev, where he was down a set. And then he eventually, um, he wins the third set, 7-6, 8-6 in the tiebreak. And then he goes on to win the fifth, 6-1. Um against you know the fifth seed of that tournament and yeah. I, I don't think that match got a lot of attention as it was happening but that is a really really impressive win to, to be able to be a top five player six one in the fifth set yeah um and then he ended up losing a pretty tight four setter to Oje Aliasim in the fourth round no shame yeah. in that at all yeah. um that one I think he might have had a set point in the third even um that was another eight six tiebreak mm. so yeah I think I mean, he does well on the hard courts, so I'm I'm really excited to see what he he does at the end of this tournament and at the Australian Open. Yeah, I wonder like how Paris is going to go as well. Like uh, if the draws are are kind, some players could go like really far into it because as we as we established before, lots of player players end up um, pulling out of Paris uh, because it's the off season. They might want to get some more rest and yeah. It's just the indoor season as well. Like it's it's a tournament that has a history of I think for nine years uh running, it was it had no defending champion. That was a different year. Oh my god. Uh, I think until until Hachinov won, there was a different year every year, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I think Djokovic defended it for the first time. I don't I don't exactly remember, but it was a long time. That there was in that period we had Soderling, Ferrer, Sock and uh-huh. who else won somebody else won that was like kind of oh well never mind I, something like that it was it was it was a def, it was it was a rough uh masters on thousand yeah I, I mean, I've, because yeah th- this is never gonna happen because the tournament would never let it happen but i've said for a while we should just axe ferris like get, get rid of it it's too late in the tournament you it's too late in the year you never get good matches at that tournament i, I think the last one like one of the only good ones we've gotten like in the decade was um Djokovic Federer in the semis in 2018, w- mm. which was an epic, uh, like three hours, two tie breaks. I just, I've been watching highlights uh, repeatedly of that one recently because uh, I found better ones on Vimeo. Um, <laughs> but like, I mean, besides that, like you said, you're getting kind of all of these random winners. Like, I think I feel like Sock beat someone like Krajinovic in the final in 2017 or f- played him in a late round here. I'm going to look at yeah. stuff. And we um, had, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, you know, you, we, you had the year Ferrer won. He had Yerti Jan, Janovic in the final. He had a killing run, but at the same time. I mean, yeah, yeah. I was, um, I, I read about that on, yeah, Sok beat Krajanovic. Yeah, I was um, reading about that on the changeover because Janovic um, uh, got a lot of articles on there. And I think he beat Murray and then he beat Chilich or something. But yeah, did, like, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people weren't, didn't show up uh, yeah. to that one. Yeah, I, I remember reading an article of, um, like Michael Lodra was like serving volleying against Ferrer. Um, and he like almost won a set and then he kind of got killed after that. But yeah, like a lot of crazy stuff happened at that tournament in 2012. Okay. And, and yeah, I think last year Medvedev won. So a bit of a regression to the mean there, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's so late. Like it feels like nothing good can come out of that tournament. Like if you get good play, players are going to be even more exhausted. So you get a bad world tour finals. If they don't play well, then it's not good to watch. So yeah, it's it, it's very difficult because it's this the structure of the ATP right now. It's very, it's actually very new if you actually look at it. It's like it's I think it 
it's from probably some 10 years back that we had okay. like ATP th- 1000. And before that, like, I don't know if you, if you actually go on Wikipedia, it's so hard to figure out like, um, what was this structure from before? Because it didn't make any sense at some uh-huh. point, like, because there is the stat like, oh yeah, Djokovic is the first player to win all of the uh, nine Masters 1000 in a year. And then some people say, oh no, but like Ivan Lendl did it before. But if you actually look at it, like, it's very difficult because at some point there were like 30 tournaments in the highest tier of tournaments before, um, like after the, the, the grand slams. And it's like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, it didn't make any sense. So that this structure is new and it's great, but maybe sadly for tennis, it might have to change soon enough again because, mm-hmm. or do something about it because I think nine masters, 1000 and eight of them being mandatory. It's yeah. quite brutal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like the Masters 1000s a lot. And nine, I don't even mind. I think having two of them after the US Open is problematic. And and the one you mentioned not being mandatory is Monte Carlo, which physically for the players makes no sense because that's the first one of the clay season when players are going to be rested. And yet that's the one that you don't have to be at. Like yeah. make make one of the really late ones non-mandatory so you can actually rest. Um, yeah, it's... There, there are definitely a lot of them. I'm, yeah. I really do like the tournament structure because they feel like they matter, even though, you know, it's not a major. Um, mm-hmm. So, and the one, the one thing that's good about, as we also were talking about money, is the fact that with so many 250s, it's opportunities for a player to grab trophies and to grab points and to grab money, right? So there's kind of always a tournament around the corner for for them to try and do something. Yeah. So that's a good thing, but. I mean, if you ask me, like, if to restructure the ATP right now, I would, I would have no idea what to do, or the WTA for that matter, because a lot of terms are joined. Yeah, I mean, it's such a massive thing. I wouldn't know where to start, but I think something that would solve a lot of these problems is if the tours play paid the players some kind of a salary, and that way it's not all dependent on prize money and endorsements. And if you lose in the first round everywhere, you'd still make something aside from that. And, and that way, maybe the pressure decreases a little bit. It makes everything a little more equal and, um, adds some financial stability for the players. But I mean, it's, it's the ATP and the WTA. Like when, when was the last time they made a positive change to benefit the (laughs) players? Like, I don't, so I'm, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not expecting anything good to happen. Maybe in like 20 years, this generation of tennis Twitter will, uh, you know, assemble and inherit all the tennis jobs. And something will happen, but as as of now, I just don't see it. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, are you looking forward to Paris at all, or is it something? And and after that, you can answer: Do you ever look forward to the ATP Finals oh, and the man. WTA Finals? Um, this is a tough question. Paris is something where, like, I'll check scores, and if I see a matchup I like, I will turn it on. It's not something that I'm going to be actively following. As for the year-end finals. I mean, it really depends. Like, I think last year, the the ATP finals were really, really exciting. And um, I mean, in 2019, the WTA finals had this insanely good match between uh, Osaka and Andrescu, but there are all these retirements and everything. And so my main issue with it is like, it's this insanely good field, right? It's the best players in the world you're guaranteed for each of them to play at least three times. And so it should be this amazing spectacle, but it's not because everyone is, is exhausted. Um, 
And so that kind of bums me out and I don't take it ser- as seriously as I think they want me to. Um, hmm. So to answer your question, do I look forward to it? I would say yes, because you're guaranteed at least some good matchups, but I think I'm more, more often I'm disappointed with it than not. How about, yeah. I mean, for Paris, it always feels like, like a glorified ACP 500 to me. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's fine. Like, I mean, I've, I've also watched pretty good matches in the past. Like when I was like, you know, let, let me, let me give this tournament a chance in a, mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, uh, and I was, I watched a few great matches between Monfils and uh, Federer. Yeah. That was that was one that was like, um, I think he, he made the finals or the semifinals in two straight. I think it was the finals in two straight years, but he played extremely grueling matches together. So he had nothing in the tank. Uh-huh. He lost to Djokovic in one of those. That's very um, Monfils. Yeah. And then um, I watched the, the, the year the Soderling won as well. He played fantastic match i think against uh lodra mm. and lodra was like serving serving and volleying but he was working it was it was being uh-huh. fantastic because he, he he looked like he had a reach that he could like cover like the entire half of the court like just by his extending his arm it, it was ridiculous like how uh-huh. well he was serving and i think he he i don't recall exactly if he had a match point in that final um or as a semifinal or something like that i think it was oh, a semifinal, yeah i really. i, I I'm getting a bit of a memory of those highlights. I think there was a match point somewhere. Yeah, and my gosh, he he could have he could have won that match. He was exciting. So that because the reason why this, this was exciting, and I guess the reason why Monfils was also exciting is because those are the players that didn't make as far all the year, and then he they were in Paris. It's like they're Frenchmen and they're <laughs> excited to play in front of their home crowds, and and they have energy now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No and, yeah. and also Lodra is playing indoor courts, so. Right. It helped him a lot, so because it was faster. I'm, even though I'm not entirely sure, like, what's the actual conditions, but no win things work normally well for players like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, aggressive tennis, um, so that's one of the reasons why. And I am I'm always excited for it in a sense because I guess like in the same way as you, like, hey, listen, like I'm probably gonna get like a good semifinal here and there or a quarterfinal. Yeah, um, yeah. And the, the ATP finals for me is, and same with the WTA finals, it's always strange because it feels like i should care a lot about it mm-hmm. but i just don't get myself to like actually like sit down and like watch the matches and maybe it's the format even though i like the format which is interesting but i, I think i think i never really watched any match from the wta finals but that's partially because it's it it, it is way earlier than the it than the atp finals yeah so i always miss the timing and it was also in singapore for a while so i was like i'm not waking up at 3 a.m to watch uh-huh. a match no way so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the first podcast we did together, which was the goat debate one in like mid 2019. Yeah. Something you said to me was like, do you care about the, the ACP finals? Cause I feel like they're kind of like a glorified exhibition. And the first time I heard that, I was like, wait, what? Like, what, what do you mean? These things are huge. Um, and since I'm just like, I kind of see what you're talking about because it's like, if someone wins, it's like, yeah, it's really impressive. Like, no match was a gimme. You had to beat a bunch of tough players, mm-hmm. but. It's also like every, I feel like you can't read into anything that happens there yeah. unless both players are at their best, which like never happens. I mean, yeah. even 2019 when team and Djokovic had that epic, um, it was so good. And then Djokovic comes out at the start of the next year and beats team in the Australian open final, which is yeah. the one that really matters. Um, so I, I guess it's not so much as like, I think it doesn't matter as 
well, I guess what I just said is that like the results are not conclusive. Like they, yeah. they don't tend to mean much for the future. I mean, Dimitrov won this in 2017, Zverev won in 2018, uh, TT Foss won it in 2019. Um, none of those guys have majors now. Um, yeah. So, did Medvedev win this tournament? Yeah, last yeah, year. he won it last year. So I, I guess he's the first one in the last few years. So yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, Murray won it in 2016, and he hasn't won a major after that. So I guess Medvedev is the first one in several years. So, uh, first guy in several years to so win a major like soon yeah. after. Um, yeah, I think. Definitely in previous years, I've paid more attention to the ATP than the, than the WTA. This year, I'm going to try to focus more on the WTA because I think that one has more potential for good tennis. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I will say, I hope I hope the conditions for both Guadalajara and Turin are mm. fast. If, if yeah. it's slow, then it's just going to be a death march every single match. So, Yeah, it's like injuries. It's the saddest thing like when a player has to retire like mid-tournament because the player that joins in to to replace them that yeah. probably they're all they're almost all the time they're playing a dead rubber because they cannot make enough wins to make it through the next round so it's kind of yeah yeah exactly a little I, sad i remember that happening in 2019 um with the with a woman and like i felt bad because i'm like why like there's no reason for them to play like they can't nothing they possibly do is going to help them advance um which was a shame and yeah i mean like everyone who follows me on Twitter knows, like I love slow courts. Like I, I think long rallies are the best, but at this point in the year, it just makes no sense. Like you can't have players having a 30 shot rally like in November, you know, it's, yeah. it's going to destroy them. So yeah, just, just let it be fast and then it'll all be over sooner. Yeah. That should be uh, the slogan for the, for the year end events, fat, fast courts. So it's over faster. Yeah. This almost sounds bad. That's probably why it isn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that, that was the joke. That would be horrible marketing. But, I mean, it does sort of encapsulate the irony. Like, it, Yeah, exactly. Like, let this be over. It's it's, it's painful to watch these players. Like, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like sometimes the tennis is good, but I think there's just this yeah. collective sense that everyone is just waiting for it to be over, like even the players. Yeah, I feel, yeah. Especially the players. The, the one thing that the I find... The one thing that I find super exciting is when the ATP Finals decides who's who's the uh, who's the number one, because then then it gives like a huge sense for it. Like when Murray beat Djokovic, yeah, that's very cool. That was amazing because it's like there's so much on the line there. It's just like yeah, that was something that bummed me out in 2018 because Djokovic and Nadal had had this epic match at Wimbledon, and um, you know like Djokovic won Cincinnati and Nadal won Toronto, and they were having like this race to number one. And then, of course, Nadal gets injured and doesn't play the stuff at the mm. end. And so it ended up being anticlimactic. But it would have been really fun to see them kind of yeah. battle it out at the end to see who got it. Yeah. I think the, the one thing that the ATP um, finals uh, falls a little bit short and, and and it doesn't so much in the in the Masters 1000 because the Masters 1000, they know their place in a sense. They're like, we are the second, yeah. we are the second biggest tournament behind the Grand Slams. Like, and I think most people think about it that way, but they're not. They're actually the third biggest tournament behind the, the Grand Slams, right? right? But like when you look at the ATP finals, you know that the ATP is trying their best to like market this one as the climax. It's like, this yes. is it. This is what the whole year has been building up towards. This is going to decide the best player in the world. Yeah, and it, it's and it, it's really the case. It's so much so be, that you make less points. Even if you win all of your matches, you make, um, I think, 12, 
1500 is the max i think yeah. yeah 1500 points and it's like a grand slam like if you if you're a finalist you already have like 1200 so it's like yeah it's a winner is like 2000 points it's, it's no joke like how much more like a grand slam is valued in any sense like perception it is more valuable money is more valuable probably money not not so much but like a points it's more valuable historically is more valuable like glory is more valuable like if you if you ask any player like which which tournament do you want to win they're most likely going to say one grand slam oh yeah i think i don't think anyone's goal is to win the world's tour finals like i remember i was watching the marty fish documentary and he said one of his huge goals in 2011 was like to make it to the world's tour finals and i was like Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense you know for for someone who's not you know, and out of this world's talent, I think that's a really good goal. And he did make it and it was really cool. But I think like once he got there, he said like he didn't really care how he did. And like now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever heard someone say like, I really want to win the win the World Tour Finals. Like no one thinks about that. It's all yeah. about the majors. And when it's not about the majors, it's about building for the majors, which is the Masters 1000s. But the World's Tour Finals doesn't really build towards anything. And it's not... Yeah. And it's not as big as a major, like you said. Yeah. So, so yeah, again, I think the goal is like, you know, let's put the best players here. They'll, they'll duke it out. And in the end, the one who walks away will be the best player in the world. But like, it rarely happens that way. Like um, in 2017, which was the year of like Roger and Rafa, it's like, like Dimitrov wins. It's like Dimitrov was world number three, like great player, but it's like Dimitrov really, like, yeah. I don't buy that he's the best player in the world, even yeah. though. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in that tournament, David Goffin beat Federer and Nadal, yeah. um, and he had, and he ended up being runner up. He lost to Dimitrov in the final. Um, and like when you're watching that, it's just very hard to believe that any of that means anything. Because yeah. um, it's like we can tell that they're not a hundred percent. Like this would never happen at Wimbledon, um, yeah. for example. So. Yeah, I yeah. It I sounds know. like if you would change that, like I mean, I don't know, like give three thousand points to the winner. I don't know, like who come come and get it. Like I don't know, just like... I think that would be worse, honestly, <laughs> because then that's going to go to like the person whose body is the least broken down. Probably um, yeah. three thousand points is so much. I think something like I push, suggested. Push Sorry? the Australian Open to the win to Indian Wells. Make Indian Wells still be played after the U.S. Open. Yeah, I, and I mean, then I... like you play the ATP Finals, like in the next year when everybody's arrested it's like first tournament of the year is like have the year-end finals like right after the u.s open and then you can just end the season after that like give it give them like a two-week break and then just play them and i i love that idea like get it get it out of the way sooner and then you don't have this 10-month race and you can give players like multiple months off and then like after the year-end finals Mm -hmm. then it's going to be a bit easier to decide i mean for the top 10 15 players anyway like what to play and what not to play yeah. Um, I think something I said I would like to see is I mean, you could even do this with 16 person fields, but do it like bracket style, like one versus eight, two versus seven. Award like two hundred or three hundred points per win. Um, like have a day off in between every match. And um and you could even do this best of five if you wanted, but it's like the max you can play is like three matches um for like the eight person fields. And that way, like it's not gonna be physically taxing. Um because last year with the ATP finals, it was brutal. Like um, team played two really tight sets against Nadal, three really tight sets against Djokovic, and then three more really tight sets against Medvedev in the final. And this was like, this all happened in like four or five days. Like doing that ever is really hard. Doing it in November is brutal. Um, yeah. Like this is right after he had won the US Open. Um, so yeah, I think it's like, 
I just make it single elimination. Like don't force these players to play three matches. Um, like give them their appearance fees, say like you get a hundred points just for showing yeah. up. Um, and then every match you win adds like 300 or whatever. And that way, like you can kind of keep the high stakes thing, but it's all just going to be over quicker, yeah. which benefits everyone. Yeah. And it's, it's understandable why this format exists. I mean, it, it was apparently it was super popular back in the day. Like, I mean, up until like 2000 and whatever, five, when mm-hmm. Bandian won, I think against Federer. Yeah, um, when you used to be used to be like a best of five players really cared about that thing like it was uh-huh. interesting to see but like nowadays it's it's i think it was the the shift between um when sampras decided that he wanted to be the to win the most grand slams and then federer wins the most and then now everything is about the grand slams not that he wasn't before but like now it's even more yeah. um and uh it makes sense like if you look at other sports they a lot lots of them have playoffs right like you have um we have in soccer, we have the Champions League. And then like in hockey, you have the Stanley Cup and whatever. MLS also in, in, in America has this type of thing, right? So it, it, it makes sense that you have like this big competition that you have to qualify to. But like in, yeah. in tennis, it's just hard to make that happen because it's just it a is. different type of sport. Yeah. And it's funny you should mention that Nalbandia and Federer match because I think I think Federer was hurt during that. And I you can so. see it I, having I an so, effect yeah. on the match. Like Federer wins two tie breaks. And then after that, it's like one six two six, and then he's down like zero four in the fifth set. Yeah. Um, and like he comes back and somehow manages to get a break lead, and then chokes and loses. Um, but like you can see, like the physical toll it takes. Like he lost sixteen of nineteen games at one point, and this is not because I mean it's partly because Nalbandian was playing really well, but it's not because Nalbandian is like a better player. It's because Federer like has an injured foot and he's exhausted. Like <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah. I yeah. I think I I suggested making it best of five to give it more tennis, but I think in a lot of ways that would just be inhumane. So. Yeah, and that's probably one of the reasons why it isn't anymore. But yeah, and all this to say that it's probably going to be good anyways. Like I mean we're going to get good matches here and there. Like the, this debate is probably something bigger than, than something that we just have to solve in a year. <laughs> but like, well, I, I mean this, this match we get between, you know, Casper Ruud and whoever qualifies in the eighth spot, that is going to be epic. I'll tell you. Yeah. I, I think the whole tennis world is going to be, I, I'm joking. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, Casper I mean, Ruud versus Berrettini. Definitely going to be. Oh one. my God. That, uh, They're probably not going to be in the same group. No, probably not. But but I was you just could that, you could that does not a, seem like yeah. a world's tour finals match. Yeah. Like you could definitely get a Casper Rude uh, Rublev one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that definitely sounds like an ATP 500 final. It, <laughs> yeah, it does. It really does. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you're right. It's inevitable that we will get some good matches or yeah. a good match. But... Yeah. And listen, nothing to take away from those guys. They're they're exciting in their own own right to watch. They're accomplished. Yeah, Ru- I mean, <laughs> Rude and Rublev have grown so much in their <laughs> games, but it's just we have been spoiled for too long by big three. Okay, so like, give us a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for the perspective. I mean, we've just harshed yeah. on the format for a good half hour, but yeah, I mean, finishing in the top eight is unreal, and Absolutely, um, yeah. and the the flawed format of the year round finals notwithstanding, it it is amazing to qualify for them. Um, so kudos to those who have already qualified on both tours and whoever ends up qualifying in the last few spots. And I'm sure that, um, there will be some good tennis again. I I wish I could say, we know there are going to be explosive matches, but yeah, I mean, I think like finishing in the top eight or top 10, um, that's, 
it speaks for itself, you know, like you mm-hmm. don't need to win the year end finals to yeah. hammer that home. It's amazing. There are a lot of players that are driven, talented, um, and these are the best of them this year. Yeah. So um, congrats to all of them. Yeah. And I'm going to say like, just as a matter of fact, I feel like the best matches that you can expect from the ATP or two finals are the semifinals. I think that's where, that's where it gets down because I think that's when um, the best player from, from both groups that like, they qualify and I don't know. It sometimes just feels like those matches are the most grueling because they want to. It's like a you you lose that match, you out. Yeah. And then the same, the final tends to sometimes be a little underwhelming at that, times. That was kind of why last year was so wild because we got two amazing semis yeah. and then we got an amazing final on exactly. top of that because yeah. you had because the story was like the big three against the next gen because you had Djokovic team and Nadal Medvedev. <laughs> And the young guys won both of them. Um, exactly. And then on top of that, they played a good final. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, but unfortunately, that is yeah. not the norm. And it's crazy because if you remember, it's like we were talking about how this match felt like he meant something, like or this 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 tournament felt like he meant something. And then Djokovic, <laughs> That's right. and then Djokovic goes on to win three of the four Grand Slams like in succession <laughs> and makes like twenty seven <laughs> wins in a row in Grand Slams. It's like oh my, it's like a biggest. It's like his laugh in the face. <laughs> I, I mean, it is. I remember saying on that episode like three different times, like it did feel like something. And I was thinking yeah. in my head like, oh, this is going to be such a good prediction. And then like Djokovic destroys Medvedev in Australia. A team is injured yeah. for most of the year. And then Nadal and Djokovic play the semifinal in Paris. And the entire time we're just like, no one else can play. Yeah. This. I think I said after that, like people are saying that Tsitsipas is going to be happy because they because that took a lot out of Djokovic I'm like I think Tsitsipas is going to be feeling bad because he knows he can't play that well yeah it <laughs> no, you're, you're completely right um yeah. but like we were saying they're not indicative of what happens next are they yeah I think we should just like hammer that into our heads like listen whatever happens here like let's just wait for Australia <laughs> yeah I, I mean since since 2015 when Djokovic beat Federer in the final because that kind of marks their uh the end of the era of Djokovic and Federer dominating the ATV finals mm-hmm. um I think on the women's side it's it's not much more indicative like I think Svitolina has won them a couple times yeah, yeah. and she hasn't been able to translate that success into a major um I don't want to take away from how hard it is to win these because again you know, like legs are screaming, bodies are broken, um, and it's the best players in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So like, it's amazing to win them. It's even more amazing to win them more than once. But like, I just don't know how much it means because the majors are played under such different conditions. Absolutely. And I don't even know, man. Like, I feel like every year, oh, sorry, uh, every year just thinks like, it just feels like something different. It, and to be fair about your predictions of Medvedev, it did feel like he was going to go for something. I feel like if Medvedev would have won the Australian Open, the year would have been completely different. Yeah. But the thing is that Djokovic just didn't allow that to happen somehow. That, that, that final still makes me mad, honestly, because Djokovic played really well, but I think Medvedev played a he played extremely match for poorly, at least two yeah. sets. Um it, and I, I, the U.S. Open was equally upsetting because Medvedev played well and Djokovic didn't. Like, yeah. I'm still waiting. I mean, the best match these two have played in a major was in 2019 when Medvedev is this baby that no one knows about. Um, so I'm still waiting for that five-set classic. The epic them. clash, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and until then, I'll just rewatch their ATP finals match from 2020 because that yeah. was epic, but... Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. Like sometimes these matches that feel like they should happen just never end up happening. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's interesting because like w- and when you think about um, Djokovic, Medvedev in the Australian Open, 
um and we we kind of broke into a recap of the year at this point but like uh, um Djokovic Medvedev it felt disappointing because we were expecting Medvedev to play extremely well and it's like oh you yeah. know like it's gonna be a tight four sets like at least right yeah. and it ended up being like not even a tight three sets and right but the, the U.S. Open just felt differently it just I don't know about you but it just felt like uh pressure was falling off of my shoulders as well because you know when you're so expectant to see something and it just doesn't happen it's like oh my gosh i'm just so happy that it's over at this point it's like i don't even it's almost like i don't even care who wins this match i just want this to be over i couldn't even (laughs) handle the idea of like a grand slam anymore it just it just felt so big and i can and for djokovic i I think we could see that it it was really big for him too because he was crying on court yeah Uh, but at the same time it's like oh gosh i'm happy for medvedev I'm also really happy that this is all over because yeah, I, can't, I, mean, I, can't I think it's extremely telling that Serena in 2015 and Djokovic this year, they were asked about it after the match and they were like, I'm just so glad it's over. <laughs> like it's so much pressure. And in theory, yeah. if you win, you should face less pressure because everyone understands that you're good, but in, in winning a grand slam, it just gets worse. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I agree with you. The Australian open final felt like Medvedev just played badly. And the U.S. Open felt like Djokovic was out of gas. Like, it wasn't necessarily that he played a bad match. It was that, like, he couldn't play a good match um, under the circumstances. So, yeah. I mean, and I mean, stuff has changed so much on the women's side as well because that final was Osaka and Brady. And Osaka looked so authoritative in winning that tournament. I mean, she, after she saved those match points against Muguruza in, like, the fourth round, Mm -hmm. and then she, like, destroyed Serena in the semis, who had been playing really well. like she looked unstoppable and then Brady who was in her like second straight amazing run at a major because she had done so well at the US Open um and had that epic run epic semifinal with Osaka that she like barely lost um and now like both of those players are kind of in the slipstream like Osaka is taking a break and Brady has been injured for a lot of the year yeah and I, I think trying to remember I mean Serena has been injured as well the semifinalists and I think Brady beat Mukova in the semis. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard her name in a bit. Mukova um, has also been injured for a bit. I mean, yeah, this is what we've been talking about. It's the yeah. end of the season. Like, just end it so that players can, like, be injured and not miss anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and th- this is why the Australian Open is my favorite major, because... Everyone is fresh fresh, because they've finally gotten time off for the first time ever. Um, And so they all come into it like raring to go and they can play these epic matches and not be gassed out from the accumulated mileage up to that point. Um, And it definitely feels like it's so fast. Like at the Australian Open, it just feels like everyone is just hitting so hard. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, my favorite year will probably forever be that 2012 tournament because Mm -hmm. the courts are like insanely slow. but. you had those uh, like the big four all in the semis um, and they can rally better than anyone else. So they're just playing these insane points for five hours against all the other ones. Um, And it was amazing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever see that again though. Yeah. Let's hope that then the little four will do something. (laughs) Oh God, the little four. I I hope that nickname doesn't stick. Wasn't it this? I think people are calling it the small four. (laughs) <laughs> it feels like another version of that baby fed thing <laughs> oh yeah no because of the big three just retire the words three and four to avoid taking pre- putting pressure on them yeah <laughs> call it like the small quartet or something well, i mean i'm kidding but <laughs> yeah it's i i don't know i think this part of the year it's 
it's just tough to yeah. be as enthusiastic as I am. Yeah. To be, I don't, I don't even, you said that like you're already excited for next year, but to be fair, I think it's also, I think it's also possible that fans are also kind of like running out of energy to watch this oh, much yeah. tennis. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, it's another big tournament. Yay. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was kind of surprised I paid as much attention to Indian Wells as I did. Cause usually after the U S open, I'm just, I'm out of it. Like usually yeah. between the Australian Open and the French Open. I'm like, this gap is too big. Like, give me another major. But then it goes Roland Garros, Wimbledon, U.S. Open, all without much time in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after that's over, I'm like, I'm I'm beat. You know, like yeah. I don't want to write anymore. I don't want to watch anymore. Like, I want to turn on highlights when I feel like it. Yeah, um, I'm just gonna watch some cricket or whatever. Like <laughs> something different, <laughs> different yeah, rhythm. I mean, um, but. Yeah, after the U.S. Open was so good, I was like, I I wanted more. So, and Indian yeah. Wells was great as well. That that women's final was one of the oh, matches of goodness, the year. Amazing, Although, yeah. um, I will go on record as saying I think uh, Kerber against Cerebus Tormo at Wimbledon was better. Um, people have forgotten about that match, which annoys yeah. me because it was so good. The, the reason why people, of- yeah, the reason oh, sorry, why people forgot about that match is because Cerebus Tormo hasn't done anything after that. Oh, come and- on. <laughs> And uh, Kerber has been struggling with her form as well, so it's it's rough because if they were if if they were in this in the, the same spot as Azarenka and Batosa, I think they would be remembered far more. But like, yeah, yeah it's a shame that it happened. Right. Like, I think in a third round like, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I think it was a second round. Um, yeah. I remember the commentators were like, "This is the quality of a Wimbledon final," and usually that would be like the biggest exaggeration ever. But it it really was like it was a better match than Barty Fliskova ended up being. Um, yeah. way better match than Berrettini Djokovic. Um. But yeah, I remember the average length of the rally is just being like eight shots. Um, it's like every on grass and every yeah. point was just completely surreal. Um, so yeah, that, that, that is match of the year. To be perfectly honest, like Wimbledon, the men's tournament was just an, a little bit, oh my God, it fell a little bit flat. So, it yeah. was an atrocity. I think <laughs> when, when one player wins 10 games in a row in a semifinal, which was Berrettini against Herkoc, you know, something is not right with the yeah. world. And then you had like the Federer coming back and just kind of like being detonated oh, yeah. on court. And then Murray, who played fantastic lobs as well, but then got destroyed by Shapovalov. It was just kind yeah. of, it definitely felt like a closing chapter. <laughs> it it, it like, really okay. Did. I've, I've almost like now. wiped that from my memory. I remember yeah. writing this long Twitter thread about Federer after he lost to Hercot. But it was like that whole thing felt so surreal. I don't think I've even started to process it. Like, yeah. I mean, usually after a moment like that, I'd be thinking about it for a long time, but it just didn't really register. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, hopefully, I mean, Murray's been playing really well, even if he yeah. doesn't have the ranking points to show for it yet. Hopefully Federer comes back in 2022. I mean, I have no idea what that body can possibly have left in it. It's, it's at this point, he's 40. just going to play the majors. He's 40. Like, yeah. He's been playing tennis professionally for more than half of his life i don't know how he's still going but i think he's he's been playing tennis for longer than you alive (laughs) yeah but by by several years um so yeah it's it's amazing that he's still doing it he loves tennis more than i've ever loved anything in my life so it's it's amazing to see um but yeah hopefully hopefully he's back nadal's back hopefully you know the um the press and everyone can give osaka enough space that she feels like she can come back mm-hmm. um and 
Yeah, I mean, I'm already just thinking about the Australian Open. Yeah. Like we have we have these year end finals coming up, and I'm thinking about the Australian Open. So yeah, I guess that I guess that sums it up for me. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I'll just wait and see for what happens in the the pairs, and just trying to come up with a clean slate. It's like you know, I just I will I'll come in with like no expectations. You know, like when yeah. players say that, just like when they're trying to like make people not put a lot of pressure on them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll just maybe try to do that myself. Yeah. About those final tournaments of the year, I'll be a little happy about December and not having tennis. But I know that every time in January, I'm kind of like, okay, so when is tennis again? <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the month off can kind of be nice because you can do like tennis relives and just talk about whatever you want. Yeah. Um, like I'm, I'm definitely going to try to read the master soon. Um, yeah. and I might try to do like a deep dive on a couple of matches. Like right now I'm, I'm trying to do this like review of like stuff I remembered from 2018. Cause that was like a great year. Yeah. Um, and, um, but I just don't have that much time right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Speaking of time, I think that's our time. So yeah, I was gonna say this seems like a good point to wrap up. I've, yeah, it has been. I have a, no idea how this is gonna sound played back. I'm not sure whether we've reviewed things or just whined about the ACP finals, and we'll we'll see. We can. I, I know. I know we have. I know you have had a, a rough uh, transition point in the middle of it, but like it was necessary. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. We we apologize if the mood of this one was. A little too negative but i guess like the players we are burned out <laughs> so. yeah definitely i think i've been burnt out since wimbledon but you yeah, power through I mean, and it's I, it's still exciting so yeah i i think it's been the same for me like in the middle of the year i wrote more than i did in like all of last year or something yeah. um and so i i took like a full month off and like i didn't write anything in august and that was very necessary oh yeah absolutely i'll probably be coming back to twitter at some point soon Mm-hmm. um i've been taking some rest from it and it's really good if you have if you feel bad about yourself when you're on twitter take a time off it might it might be better than you think it may be something that is destroying your life within and you don't even know so here's a here's a piece of advice <laughs> words to live by it might be yeah. destroying your life from within and you won't even know <laughs> yeah oh the bird app yeah <laughs> all right anyway man uh great to talk to you yeah it's it's been fun um lo- looking forward to the next one of these chats hopefully the next couple of tournaments will give us some really good tennis to talk about i mean i feel bad saying that since we basically talked about alcaraz and Berrettini and no one else yeah um, shout out to my boy felix for playing a fantastic tie break against nori and uh, that passing shot a match point was ridiculous yeah so. Yeah, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. That was amazing. He was yeah. he's down six three, and I think he forced like he hit winners or forced errors on like the next all the match points. I think. It, it, it was, was ridiculous. Was it, it was it was peak 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 Felix peak Felix. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Yeah, uh, yeah well, looking forward to the next one of these. Um, and yeah, uh, hope you're doing well. Yeah, you too, man. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, you can follow us at Tennis and Bagels on Twitter, and Owen is at Tennis Nation. I'm at Rollenberg Andre. I think. Um, and um, Vansh, who is not here today, but love you, Vansh. Uh, it's at Vansh VTK. Uh, see you guys next time. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.